Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 7. If you've been to a grocery store, or if you've been to a drugstore, or Walmart, or Target, if you've like left your home and you're not holed up in there because Corona has kept you there forever and ever, um, you've probably heard songs playing uh, while you're in there. And one of those songs that you've probably heard in one of these stores is All of Me. The essence of this secular love song is captured in this expression, all of me loves all of you. Now that's not a bad sentiment for a husband toward his wife, for sure. And certainly, it is the way that every believer feels when thinking about loving God. It is right for you, and it is right for me as believers in Jesus Christ, to want to love God with all of our being. In fact, the Lord Jesus calls us to this undivided love. Listen to the words that you're familiar with from Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is what God has told us, that we should love him entirely. However, as much as we desire this, and as much as this is the call from the scriptures, the passage that we will study this morning will alert us to the reality that we are divided in our love. We are divided in our passions. We are divided in our allegiance. I want to get caught up in the context of this study with a brief uh, recap. So follow along with me because this is good uh, review for us to make sure we understand the argument of God through Paul for us as believers. For the believer, the lordship of sin has been overthrown. The lordship, that's a very important word, the reign of sin has been thrown off. Why? Because we have died with Christ. So sin no longer has a right to rule over us because it can't rule over someone who's dead. The lordship also of the law has been overthrown for the very same reason. Both of these realities, the overthrow of sin and the overthrow of the law, have told us that we have a new master. A new master. And that new master is God himself. God, our master, issues forth grace. In that issue of grace, he provides for us his own Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, that third person of the triune Godhead, produces within us and through us fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Yet in Romans chapter 6, while we've recognized that we've thrown off the lordship of sin, while we've been told that we're dead to sin, Romans 6 tells us that we still battle with the remnants of our sinful flesh. The remnants of our sinful flesh. We are commanded to lay aside our sinful disposition. Look please with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your, what does it say? Mortal, physical body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members present them to God as instruments for righteousness. We're told to cast off, to set aside, to put to death the remaining sinful disposition that we have. As we get to chapter 7, Paul has taught us this. We have been released from the law's lordship in verse 1. We belong to our Savior with fruitful results in verse 4. In verse 5, we learned this. When we were in the flesh, that means unsaved, 
When we were in the flesh, the law aroused our sin and produced death. So as unregenerate people, the law aroused sin and condemned us to eternal separation from God. But now, as those that are alive from the dead, verse 6, we live empowered by God's Spirit. This produced a question in verses 7 through 12 that Paul asks and answers. In Romans 7, 7 through 12, Paul answers this question. Is the law sin? Is the law intrinsically evil? Is the law the cause of my sin? Does the law provoke? Is it, is it the reason that I sin? And the answer that he gives is a resounding, absolutely not, no way, no how. Our sinful disposition used the law of God nefariously to produce more sin. But the law itself, he tells us in verse 12, is holy, just, and good. So he answers the question, is the law sin? With an absolutely no way, it is not sin. It is righteous. It is just. It is good. Now we come to verse 13. And verse 13 serves as a transition in Paul's argument in this text. First, Paul asks and answers another question. Here's the question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Now, when he says, did that which is good, he's referring to the law. That's the context. He just said in verse 12 that the law is holy, that the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that law then bring death to me? And his answer is, no way. Absolutely not. The law doesn't produce death. The law pronounces death. There is a significant difference. Sin is the culprit that brings death. John Piper, in his sermon on Romans 7, he's got like eight trillion sermons on Romans 7, uh, he says this, speaking of Paul, he defends and supports his doctrine of justification by faith and sanctification by faith by arguing that the law is holy, just, and good, and spiritual. It, the law, is powerless to justify and sanctify not because it is sinful and deadly, not because the law is sinful and deadly, but because I am sinful and my sin is deadly. This is what we're learning from Romans 7. It's, it's, a, it's really um, an unveiling. It is an unmasking of who I am as a person. I am sinful, and the results of that sin is deadly. The second part of his transition is this. What sin uses to bring death, in verse 13, God uses to show the depth of our sin. What sin uses to bring death, God uses to show the depth of our sin. Verse 13 again. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We'll talk about that statement in a few moments. God uses the law to make a dividing line between our fleshly old man and our spiritual new man. God uses the law to make a dividing line, a distinct dividing line, between our fleshly old man and our spiritual new man. And in the remainder of Romans chapter 7, he's going to show the conflict that takes place within the believer, the, this conflict where the believer desires to be obedient due to his new nature, but there's a struggle to perform that obedience due to the old nature that remains, that remnants of the old nature, like the residue of the old nature that remains. So there's a, an, uh, a residual impact that our old nature has, though it was crucified with Christ, that disposition. Earlier we read the entirety of the text uh, in our scripture reading, 
it starts with this, these questions, uh, this question in verse 13, and the declaration that the law demonstrates the sinfulness of our nature. In verse 14, he's going to show the, the contrast between the law being spiritual and my flesh being carnal, that I'm sold under sin. He's going to talk about the fact, I want to do these things, but I do this. I don't want to do these things, but I, but I end up doing them anyway. There's a, a conflict taking place throughout. He's going to show that struggle. What we understand from Romans chapter 7 is we are a people in conflict. We are a people in conflict. Inside. I'm not talking about the world warring against us. I'm not talking about Satan warring against us. So easy to blame the world, the flesh, excuse me, the world and the devil. Our, our, our biggest enemy is our own sinful flesh that desires to walk contrary to the truth of God. There's this conflict. And he's going to talk very um, personally about this conflict. We are a people in conflict. The reason that we're a people in conflict is because God has made us new. If we weren't believers there'd be no internal conflict. We would just go with the, with the tide. We would go with the flow of the river. Here, we want to go this. This is what we want. And we go down that, that uh, rapid. The, the canoe or the raft keeps going with that rapid. The current is pulling us along and we're very happy to go. Don't even have to put the oar in the water. There's no effort involved. They just keep on flowing. And what flows out of us is contrary to God's will. But as those who have come to be new creations in Christ Jesus, we find ourselves regularly trying to swim upstream. Swimming upstream is difficult. Walking against the current is difficult. How about being in a, a raft trying, trying to fight the currents? It's almost impossible. But see, we're not fighting this, this negative current, this con current that's contrary to us with physical means, or we would surely lose. We fight this countercurrent with the very power of God. And God's power doesn't lose. See, the victory is, is available to us. We want to talk about this, this uh, conflict, this internal conflict for just a moment. Take a look, first of all, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The reason that we have this inner conflict is because God has made us new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look with me please at verse 17. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we only had this text of Scripture, if you... Let's, let's go. If you only had this text of Scripture and no more information, I want to ask you a question. I want you to be honest. If you read that in review of this last week, what do you think you'd be thinking about your eternal destination? You would feel of all men most miserable because you know that you did some things this last week, yesterday, perhaps this morning, that didn't look like all things have been made new. You would be super discouraged if that's the only text you had about the new creation in Christ. But God's Word gives us more to help us to understand all of what goes on within us as new creations in Christ. Take a look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We'll read beginning in verse 5 right down through verse 10 where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to fill out some more information about what happens inside the life of the person that has been made new. In verse 5 he says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Now stop right there for a moment. We are familiar that at this point in the conversation, he is definitely talking not to an unredeemed group of people, but to the church. He's talking to believers. And he tells this group of believers to put to death what is earthly that remains in them. And he lists some. 
He's a sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these types of sinfulness and more, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once... What does it say? Walked. Oh, wait a second. There's a difference between something that remains and something that we used to walk in. It used to be our way of life to live as he describes in the, the put these things off. But now, they rear their ugly heads, they crop up, and he tells us to subdue them, put them aside. There's a conflict. Before, there was no conflict. Before, we just walked in them. Did what came natural to us. And what came natural to us was enmity with God. Walking contrary to his commands and purposes and plans. His revealed will meant nothing to us. But now he says there's something going on inside of you that must be set aside. There's some things, earthly things that remain in you. Look a little further now. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Look at These things are, are practical, everyday evidences of our fleshly remnants. And we shouldn't feel comfortable being angry. We shouldn't feel comfortable being wrathful. We shouldn't feel comfortable speaking ill of other people. Slander. We shouldn't feel comfortable letting, oh, oh, I slipped again. Oh, sorry, pastor, I didn't mean to say that in front of you. Sorry, chaplain, I didn't mean to say that in front of you. I get that all, all the time. I, I, oh, I shouldn't have said that because you're here. What difference do I make? Who am I? I have no authority to condemn you or to bless you. I can't uplift you and make you pleasing to God. I can't prevent you from being pleasing to God. I have nothing to offer. I know someone who's listening all the time. I know whose life you're living out, your life out in front of all the time. So apologize not to me. If you think something is not so right in front of me, it should be not so right in front of him. Put these things aside. They're common things. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Why is this? Seeing that you have put off. He's talking about something that's already completed. You have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So he talks in Colossians, he's throwing a bunch of information at us. He's telling us, hey, you've already put off this old man. You've already put on the new man. You're growing. But you have some things that remain. Let those things that, that remain be put off. They're contrary. You used to walk in them. Now you're repulsed by them. Are you? Are you repulsed by those sinful practices that creep up within you? That tendency toward lust? That tendency toward envy. Someone else got the promotion. Someone else got the... Oh, it all worked out for them. Every time I try to do this thing, the way it's supposed to naturally be done, it's like everything goes wrong for me. This guy over here, he does, does things the, the same way essentially that I did, and they get all the breaks. Envy. Envy. Jealousy. These things crop up. Uh, oh, well, I've got to protect my reputation. I don't want them to know that I did X, Y, or Z, so I'm just going to bend the truth just a little bit so they don't know. We hate those things. Hating those things comes out of the new disposition. The tendency toward doing those things comes from the old disposition. And we have both of these things warring within us. Take a look at Ephesians 4. He says the same thing with a slightly different um, grammar. He uses different tenses. Instead of talking about them as having been accomplished, he talks about them as things that need to be done. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and following. He says in verse 22, to put off your old self. So that's a, a, a directive. A directive to put off the old man which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt or is growing corrupt through deceitful desires. And you should be renewed... 
in the spirit of your minds. How do we do that? Well, through confessing our sin, through getting our eyes, not looking out there, and not even looking in here, but looking right here. This is how we renew our minds. See, if I look inside for answers, I'm going to come up severely short. If I look out there for answers, I'm going to come up severely short. It's when I look in here, God reveals His way, His purpose, His grace. Renewed, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self. That new self was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's, that's the real righteousness. Put on a righteousness right now, today, in your moment that you live, put on right now the righteousness that belongs to another. He's not talking about coming to Jesus. He's talking to people that already know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And he's telling them, apply, put into operation His righteousness. This is something that I can't produce. This is, this is saying, God, I need Your righteousness to be on display in my life. Now Paul's going to get to that in Romans chapter 8 very clearly. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And he goes on to apply a number of specifics. To apply the put off the old man, and put on the new man. He uses some very specific things about telling the truth and using our time to benefit others, not stealing but giving. Using our tongue to benefit others, not to corrupt others. Rather than hating and holding a grudge to love and to give grace and, and mercy, forgive one another. Rather than walking in selfishness in chapter 5 and verse 1 and following, walk in humility, walk in love, walk in concern and sacrifice for others. What a difference. The old disposition that leads us to the old way and the new disposition that leads us to a new way that doesn't happen. That new way is not there unless God has done a work of making us new. When we reside in the old man without the benefit of the new man, we just keep walking the way we've always walked. And maybe we try to make little changes here and there. We recognize that being selfish doesn't work out so well in a relationship. And some counselor told me, hey, give a little too. And so I give 50 and they give 50 and it still doesn't work out so well, but it's better than it was. That's, that's the old way. The new way is to recognize this life is not about me. This life is not about what I want, what I feel I need, what I feel I deserve. This life is about living for the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. What a difference. Take a look now at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. As believers, we are being instructed to set aside our remaining fleshly influence. Reynolds Showers, while writing about the concept of a whole new nature, says, the individual is one person spiritually in his unregenerate state, but is another person spiritually in his regenerate state. In his unregenerate state, he is an old man who was characterized by rebellion against the rule of God. In his regenerate state, he is a new man who is favorably disposed toward the rule of God. This is, this is that, that conflict going on within us. The old man that runs contrary and the new man that seeks of all things to be in harmony with God. Paul in Romans chapter 7 will teach us that while we have this new nature that is favorably disposed toward the rule of God, having already taught us that the rule of sin, law, and death has been broken, that we still have a residual problem because we remain to be human. We remain to be human. In this life, that humanness 
will wage war against who we really are in Christ. That humanness wages war. It's resistant to who we are in Christ. See, in my inner man, the one that that knows God, the one that has been redeemed, I just want to do what God wants me to do. I just want to be who God wants me to be. I see the right way and I want it desperately. But the humanness that remains in me hates that way and wants to go in the absolute opposite direction. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 5. Take a look. You're in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, what does it say? The desires of the flesh. You have desires in your flesh, right? All kinds of things. They creep up daily, moment by moment. And God says, here's how to deal with those desires of the, of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't. You won't gratify. You won't cater. You won't give in. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are what? Against the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Holy Spirit are against what? The flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Oh, what do I want to do? Well, when I'm led by the Spirit, I want to do God's will. When I'm led by my flesh, I want to do the things that please me. These things do not align. The more we try to make them align, the more we we try to meld them together, the more often we will find ourselves in our flesh walking in a way that feels to us, feels to us like we're obeying the Lord. This is why there are rule keepers. I will read my Bible every day. I will pray for however many minutes every day. I will go to every time to church every time the doors are open. I will not say the wiki wiki bad words. I will not go to the really, really bad places. I won't go to movies and I won't listen to music that is secular and culture. I, I won't do any of these things. I'm going to do all these things because I want to make sure that I don't violate any of God's commands. And we find our fleshly way of heading toward God. And then, you know what we've done? We've broken down the, the vast dividing line that takes place between my flesh and the Spirit. Because all of my ways are aligned toward what I think is right. And, and, I, and I have this list of rules that I think will make me spiritual. Well, that's not... Paul is saying... When we look at the, who we really are, and we look at what God really says, you can't, you can't walk closely to it. You can't walk closely to it and feel okay. This is what Jesus did with the law. Oh, you love your neighbor as yourself, do you? This is what really loving your neighbor as yourself says. Sell everything you have. Sell your car. Sell your house. Sell your clothes. Get all the money. Have all the resources, right? And you get one sliver, and your neighbor gets one sliver, and that person's neighbor gets one sliver. We're going to split it up. You really love your neighbor as yourself. He gets just as much as you do. I earned all that money, though. You said you love your neighbor. What is it? What's the word? As yourself. You're hungry, you eat. He's hungry, he eats. You're cold, you put on a coat. He's cold, he puts on a coat. I know. Don't murder. I've never murdered anyone in my whole life. Jesus does not let you feel comfortable about your expression of feeling like you've never killed anyone. He said, have you been angry with someone? You've murdered them in your heart. Oh, I, I have all these things. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to commit adultery. I, I have hedges around my life. I protect myself. If you look upon a woman with the intention of lusting, you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus does not let us feel comfortable coming close to the law. He puts a dividing line 
And that's exactly what Paul does. A dividing line. You cannot do this. You cannot do this but by the grace of God. You can't come close and feel okay. If you come close and feel okay, it's all about you and your flesh. Head back, please, to Romans chapter 7. The Bible paints a vivid picture of a divided, conflicted person. And if we are not aware of this picture that God paints for us of the divided, conflicted Christian, we will spend a lot of time in a state of confusion wondering whether we are truly redeemed sinners headed for heaven. Or we'll just ignore what God's Word says. We'll either be very confused or ignore the demands. God doesn't let us be confused when we read what He says. He lets us know that there's going to be a battle raging within us. That there'll be times that we are favorably disposed toward the Lord. And there'll be some remnants fighting against that, leading us away. He's going to tell us how to deal with that a lot more in chapter 8. The new way to live is by the Spirit. He's told us that already in verse 6 of this chapter. And when we are walking in the Spirit, there's freedom, victory, and fruit. In verse 6, he tells us that we don't any longer walk by the written code. That written code uh, does serve, however, to reveal another force within me that he's talking about now. It's one that runs contrary to the Spirit and contrary to the good, just, holy law. We're in verse 13 now. And we've done all of the deep, hard work. We're ready to understand what Paul is saying in these texts. The first is very self-evident. The law does not produce death. The law does not produce death. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. So he's talking about the law being that which is good. The just judge, which not every judge is, but the just judge will render judgment according to the law. Right? You violated this statute. What is that statute? Well, it's you were driving recklessly. You were driving 90 in a 55. You were swerving in and out of traffic. You actually went into the breakdown lane and cut by all the other cars and you came back. He uses the law, the statute, and he renders judgment. The judgment that is dispensed is based upon the action of the defendant, the defendant, based upon the law. The law doesn't do the, 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 the bad work. The defendant does the bad work and the law is there to render judgment. The law is there to say, here's what you violated. That's what Paul is telling us here. The, the good law is not the cause of death. It just pronounces death based upon the deed that was performed by you. The deed that was performed by me. I sin, and therefore the law pronounces me guilty. And the judgment of that guilt is what? Death. So what brings death? Sin. The action. Secondly, as we move a little further, the law proclaims the magnitude of sin. Verse 13 again. The law proclaims the magnitude of sin. Verse, right in the middle of the verse. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So he starts by using this word, shown, in the middle of verse 13. Shown, and it's the Greek term, phino. It means to be revealed or to bring to light. So let's think about it this way. There you are, running down the street. And you trip. 
and you fall on your arm. Your arm is hurting. And you go to see some medical professional and they take an x-ray. And after that, they take an MRI. The x-ray reveals this image that you have a broken bone in your, your uh, arm. And then you also tore some ligaments. That wasn't revealed by the x-ray, but by the MRI. The x-ray and the MRI are the imaging that reveal what has gone on. They didn't cause the break. They didn't cause the tearing. They just revealed to you that you had a break and a tear. Now, if you didn't have the x-ray and you didn't have the MRI, you would still have the break. And you would still have the tear. And you would feel the pain of it, but you wouldn't exactly know what was going on. What the law does is it says, here's the problem. This is exactly what the problem is. You have violated the law of God. It's like the x-ray or the MRI showing you what the problem is. Then he says at the end of the verse that through the commandment, he might, uh, that sin might become sinful beyond measure. What in the world? What are you saying? The word beyond measure is the Greek term hupabole, and it means to throw past the mark. To throw past the mark. The New American Standard translated as utterly. That sin might become utterly sinful. What he's letting us know is that as we look at the law of God, it doesn't produce sin. It's not the cause of sin. It unveils sin. It might even arouse sin in the unbeliever. It's revealing sin and it's revealing the, the magnitude the surpassing nature of it. The same word hupabole is translated twice in the book of 2 Corinthians, once in chapter 4 and verse 7, once in chapter 12 and verse 7, and it says the surpassing greatness. Well, that's in a good context. Well, this is the surpassing wickedness of sin. The law reveals the depths, the depths of our depravity. God's commands help us to understand the deep depravity associated with my sin. Sin stands in sharp contrast to our holy God. The law reveals this state of depravity and it offers no hope. It offers no freedom, no release, and it offers me no release of the consequences. Believers come to hate their sin. Believers come to hate their sin. There is a lot of ink that is used writing commentaries, and I'm glad that it has been, they've been there, deliberating whether Paul is talking about himself or whether he's talking about some unredeemed person in this text. My friend, without going into all of the elements of the argument, I just want you to think about this. When you were an unbeliever, did you detest your sin? There might have been some sinful elements that you detested when you saw the impact it was having on your family that you kept on knocking back another drink and you couldn't keep a job and you were, you were an alcoholic and making your family miserable. You might have detested that because of all the consequences and all the... the, the casualty that came with it. But did you detest when you wanted something? Did you detest when you coveted something? No. It's when we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior that our sin became a glaring, glaring problem. I hate this. I don't want this. This is contrary to who I am. God has made me new. I have new affections, new thirsts, new desires, new treasures. 
Believers come to hate their sin. And the law helps with this. The law reveals how terrible sin is. That's what he's saying at the end of verse 13. That our sin would become sinful beyond measure. Now Paul is going to provide us with this deep contrast between the law and the remaining fleshliness that plagues us during this life. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. Ready? Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, what does he mean, spiritual? He uses the Greek term pneumatikos. It means of or related to the spirit. Of or related to the spirit. God says that the law is from or of the spirit. Now this is not the first time in the book of Romans that he's used this word pneumatikos. Look at chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1. We have just a couple of minutes remaining. And verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I want something that is of or related to the Spirit to dispense to you for your benefit. That's the word he uses, spiritual. Same word in Romans chapter 7. Look at chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, just for a moment. And verse 27. He says, For they were well pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to you. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that's the word, pneumatikos, spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So he's using this again very positively. This word is used by Paul while discussing spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And he also uses it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. This will be on the screen. Where God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This word pneumatikos is a good word. The blessing that we have, that, that, is, that we're waiting for, it, it comes from Him. It comes from the Spirit. It's otherworldly. That's what He's telling us about the law. The world, the, the, the law comes from, from outside of you. It's a spiritual blessing that God has given to you. One writer, Frank Thielman, writes about Paul's use of pneumatikos. He says, he, he, Paul, frequently uses it of people in whom God's Spirit dwells and who are therefore sensitive to God's guidance and concerns. The law, then, is God's good gift and appeals to the aspect or appeals to the aspect of the inner person that is sensitive to God's will. In this text, Paul is going to call the law spiritual in verse 14, good in verse 16, and in verse 22, he's going to bring the clincher. I delight in the law of God. And the New American Standard says, I joyfully concur with the law of God. I joyfully concur. He's not saying the law should be set aside. It's bad for us. It it doesn't help us in any way. This is not how Paul talks about the law. He says the law is good, 1 Timothy chapter 1, if it is used rightly. What is it used rightly to do? It's to show me that I'm a sinner. It's to show me God's way, God's will, God's wisdom. It shows us the, the plan of God. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. Paul is not painting the law as in a poor light. Rather, he paints himself in a poor light. Please understand that from Romans chapter 7. Too many times people want to just look at the law as detestable. The law of God is not detestable, it's the law of God, it's good. Paul is saying, the problem lies right here. And I would say to you, in addition to it being right here, it's right there. This is where the problem lies. And so we see what he says in verses 14 and following. I am still impacted by the flesh. I am still impacted by the flesh. Verse 14, 4. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now what Paul's going to do in verses 14-17, through 17, he's going to do round one of talking about where his failure is. And in verses 18-20, through 20, he's going to do round two. He's going to build on that. Uh, so we're going to just take just a moment to look at verses 14-17. through 17. Paul is contrasting the spiritual or, uh, origin and nature of the law with the believer's nature that has remaining sin. He says, I am of the flesh. I am of the flesh. That's an interesting word. And he uses the word sarkinas. Sark. Sark is material flesh. Sarkinas has the idea of humanness. In 2 Corinthians 3.3, he talks about, uh, uses the word sarkinas, and he says it's the, the human hearts. Human is the word sarkinas. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll talk about this next week rather than turn there right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I couldn't feed you with, with meat. I had to give you milk. Why? Because you are carnal. Carnal. You, you're fleshy. The, your flesh is ruling you. Instead of setting your flesh aside, you're allowing your flesh to be where you're residing. You're living in your flesh. And so you can't even handle the meat of the Word. I have to hold forth some of the doctrine that you desperately need because you're spending all your time fleshing. Well, Paul says this about himself. I am of the flesh. He's not saying he's unredeemed. He's saying that he has remaining flesh. Now he uses a really controversial statement. He says, sold under sin. Sold under sin. This is very difficult. This has caused great conflict in the history of interpreting this passage. So in order to understand it, you have to understand the flow of the, the, this passage, which we've been talking about again and again. I keep going back to the flow of the, the conversation. because I don't want to get locked in on one verse and make doctrines out of one verse. We're trying to see what Paul is building in his argumentation. So, we don't have time to get into the flow right now. Next week when we do, we'll see that when he says sold under sin, he is not saying I am still a slave to sin like I used to be. He's already said that sin has been cast off as a master, but he's letting us know in another way that we have a remaining influence. Let's conclude with this. My friend, that's you. Do you feel a battle going on inside of you? Do you feel a battle going on inside of you? I want to tell you, good. Good. That means there's spiritual life. No battle, no life. Real battle, Hating my own sin. I'm not talking about hating everyone else's sin. That's easy. That's easy. Everyone in this world hates other people's sin. The Democrats hate the Republican sin, and the Republicans hate the Democrats' sin. The independent or libertarian or whatever other thing, they hate everyone else's sin. The people that, that go on a, on a peaceful protest, they hate other people's sin. Well, the people that do the con counter protest they hate the other people's sin oh you can you can demonstrate all day long about other people's sin that's easy i'm not talking about that do you feel a battle inside of you about your sin or are you so caught up with every other problem in this world that you just dismiss your own problems oh i'm fine i've got it all figured out i do it the right way Mm, you're looking in the wrong direction. That battle is good. My friend, those of, those of us that we feel this battle and you feel it every day, I want to give you a little encouragement as we conclude. There's a coming day when our body and our mind will be fully redeemed. 
Listen to these words in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject, what does it say? All things to Himself, including this thing. One day, this of the flesh, this I am of the flesh, sarkanos, it will be done. My vile body will be looking at His glorious body. And the, the power that is needed to accomplish this doesn't come from me. It comes from Him. And everything He intends to subdue, He subdues perfectly. This is good news. You struggle every day, but God is going to redeem your body if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Listen to this text from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see Him in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know, how does it say? Fully. Fully. We'll know fully. Even as I have been fully known. My mind redeemed. The bondage gone. The struggle, the conflict, the fight, the war inside of me, over. My body redeemed. My mind redeemed. The Bible promises this over and over again. 1 John chapter 3, look at what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. And, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, what does it, what does it say? We shall be what? Like Him. We shall be what? Like Him. He doesn't struggle. His conflict, none. Does that, was he tempted when he was here? Yes. He's died and been raised. Sin has no way to impact him at all. And that's true for every redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. There's a coming day when there's not one temptation that will overtake us. We'll never cater to our flesh again. That day is coming. The war is coming to an end. And I'll let you know, God wins every single time. One day we will not be divided. We will not be at conflict within ourselves. One day, all of me will love all of Him. And there will be no interruption. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're good. We don't like the battle that we experience daily with ourselves, but you have ordained it. It pleases you in some way that we have this battle. And we know that ultimately you will obtain the victory, for you are the victorious one. Help us. Help us in the midst of these days not to despair, but to delight. To delight in You. And to know how the end will come. To know that there is victory one day. Help us to endure the battle. Help us to endure it with Your Spirit with Your Word, and with Your people. Father, we need one another in this process. Help us to be a source of support and concern and care for one another that we would fight this fight together, empowered by Your Spirit, producing Your fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.